Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the wildfires in California, the hurricane in Louisiana, and then we're joined by Mark Sandlin from uh, The Christian Left. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Uh, you're listening to The Common Good. I, I almost said hump day there, and it just threw me off all of a sudden. But you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. We're excited to be joined here in a little bit by Mark Sandlin. Uh, he's the president of an organization called The Christian Left. We're excited for that conversation. Uh, but before we get to that, Ian, wanted to talk about just some current events. But before we do that, wanted to hear, A, how are you doing? B, the world wants to know, did you take your run today in the 98-degree temperatures? It's probably more accurate to say the run took me, man. It was not not a you great. Did not, I did. I did. But it was it was sloppy. It was real. What did I say yesterday? That if anyone saw me, they'd be inclined to like call an ambulance. <laughs> there was definitely some worried people you know, either cycling or running in the opposite direction, thinking like, is that guy going to make it? It was not. I walked I walked in after the run and my wife was like, how was it? And I like barely uttered out like awful. It was awful. <laughs> Why do I do this to myself? Not uh, not enjoyable, but I, I'm glad I did it. I'm just going to give you the the virtual over the Internet pat on the back, because the very fact that you ran in this, I was like I was sitting outside working at a Panera, just dripping sweat today. So the fact that you ran in this, it's uh, almost, kudos to you. This is going to be an unpopular opinion. It's almost more enjoyable, though, to be running in this than to be like sitting in work clothes, because at least your brain goes, I'm running. I'm supposed to be dripping in sweat when you're like at a laptop in your khaki shorts and your polo shirt. That's just that's so much more uncomfortable. You're like, oh, I don't want to be sweating. I'm just sitting. I'm not doing anything. I almost find it less annoying if I'm actually doing something physical, to be honest. So I certainly had a moment going, why am I sitting outside here right now? Right. <laughs> what am right. I doing? 100%. I'm like melting my computer and just uh, sweating <laughs> out here. So uh, we hope that you're all having a good day. Lots of good stuff planned for us today. I wanted to start. Uh, with something, if you listen to the show much, Ian introduced a couple weeks ago, just kind of, we call it rapid fire, just kind of going through the headlines of the day. And the first one is one that I, I just had trouble conceiving of. This is this storm that is heading towards Louisiana and Texas, Hurricane Laura. Yeah. Uh, and I was watching something on the Weather Channel today where they were showing basically what it's like and the destruction that could come from a storm surge, three feet, six feet, nine feet, because that is the big danger that's coming right now. There are some places in Louisiana where they're expecting up to 15 to 20 foot storm surge. It has been described as, quote, unsurvivable storm surge. And the guy on the Weather Channel today said that this storm surge could penetrate up to 30 to 40 miles inland from the immediate coastline, I I could not get my mind around this. And besides saying we need to pray and 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 look for ways to support these people, this is just terrifying, isn't it? Yeah, it's not ever anything. I mean, you've never lived in a coastal area, have you? Jersey, but we didn't get storms not like, like this. this no, though, right? Like yeah, this. not like uh, right, not oceanic types of. Right. It's I have friends that live in some of those areas, and it is interesting. At least prior to this storm, how nonchalant some of the weather warnings can be like all right everyone get out the plywood we got a category two coming you know it's just sort of like normal you know how like in certain areas of the country earthquakes are just sort of like a regular occurrence i'm like gosh i am i am categorically midwest because i've not i mean tornadoes you know we had a bit of a storm here a couple weeks ago but 
not even really to any kind of consistently frightening degree. I'm just, I can't imagine having to even prepare for this. Like they were giving, I was listening to some of the alerts that were going out and they were giving alert. Like, Hey, this is the last day you have to, you know, make preparations on your house. Like this is just a regular, well, house prep season. You're like, Oh my gosh, how terrifying is that? Yeah, the 30 to 40 miles inland that this could penetrate is unreal. And then out of California, uh, there is a complex fire that it says has charred charred more than 350,000 acres and has destroyed more than 900 structures. It feels like maybe I just was unaware, but the amount every year during this fire season, the amount of destruction is crazy. And they said... Uh, the spokesperson, spokeswoman for Napa County said, we've had a forfer with COVID, a heat wave, wildfires, and the threat of rolling power outages. But they said that this fire at one point was the size of the state of Delaware, uh, like that amount of space. And so it's a talk about this, this between this hurricane and this wildfire, uh, a lot to be prayerful for and just thinking of people. I did want to spend the rest of our time. Uh, this story that continues to evolve out of Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, the shooting of Jacob Blake. We learned yesterday that he's paralyzed from the waist down, but it does at least appear that he's going to live, which is, uh, you know, which is great news. But then last night amongst the protests and there was, there was just, it was charged emotionally. There was some looting, all sorts of stuff. The, the imagery of some people with uh, AR 15s and it's particularly uh, a guy from a 17 year old from Antioch, Illinois, Kyle Rittenhouse shot three people, killed two people. He was arrested today. But just I, I don't know what else to say. But when I was watching all of this from the beginning of the Jacob Blake stuff through this, it's it's so uh, sad, disheartening. Uh, I don't have a strong enough word like the depth of darkness that was going on through this whole story. I, I found myself just. Oh, really? Just uh, kind of beaten down by it, but I just couldn't believe the imagery, especially of of this kid with a gun, and he went up there to kind of cause problems. It was just the depths of of the darkness. There was really uh, it really affected me today. Well, and that's a fair warning too. If you go and look for the photos, yeah, the video, careful. be be forewarned. It is it, I, it. It's so bizarre, and it is. It's all the things that you said. It's heartbreaking. It's heart wrenching. It's dark it's heavy it almost feels like in some sense you know there's so much like and we've even talked about in the last five or six months gosh i don't know that we've had this many you know dramatic headlines after another in yeah. this rapid succession in my like adult life and it is heartbreaking to see the ways that it's manifesting like he's a he's a kid it's heartbreaking yep. regardless but i mean i don't know for some reason to me is like what and we don't know much about the kid yet, but there, it just it seems so so drastic and so like hopeless, like a like a like a kid that had just sort of reached his end. And I I don't know what to even make of it. To be honest, I don't have any like thoughtful theological or political observation or way through it. Like I just saw it. I think I saw it on my phone. And I like out loud just went no no. Like yeah, it just. Yeah. Like it's it's affecting you and I the way that it is, and we don't know any of the people involved. I can't even imagine, you know, being his parents or being the people shot or being the people, you know, in that neighborhood or being like just so many layers to the heartbreak. I think to me it's just one more example of like how unraveled so many people are feeling yes. right now. And yes. and at the very least, you know, again, to implore people to 
be kind to yourself and others like that. We just gotta, we gotta do better. Absolutely. Yeah. That story, everything from, like you said at the beginning of the Jacob Blake stuff and then up to what happened last night and stuff still going on. I was talking to somebody and hopefully this doesn't just come across as flippant or just too churchy or whatever, but I, I really do mean it with all that's going on in our culture. Like you just said, it just, you can't even keep up with the news and it feels like now we're moving towards the election. I was like, man, the church really needs to be the light, <laughs> really needs to be the light. And you and I have talked ad nauseum about where the church is doing that well and where the church, big C church is not doing that well, but everything you just turn on the news and it is all so heavy from natural disasters, but then more this just unrest and uh, man, that story adding this kid into it or 17 year old is just so dark and heartbreaking. So all of us uh, Christ followers uh, need to take up the call to be, uh, to be the light in the midst of the darkness. Well, that's kind of what's going on in our world. Coming up next, we're excited for an interview we're going to have with Mark Sandlin. He is an ordained uh, PCUSA minister. He is also the co-founder of an organization called The Christian Left. Mark Sandlin is going to join us next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you joining us on this steamy Wednesday afternoon. Uh, one of the reasons we love having a podcast is uh, all the good guests that we get to have. You can go back and listen to them. And with that in mind, we're really excited to be joined on the phone right now uh, by Mark Sandlin. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here with you. Absolutely. Well, why don't you just introduce yourself to our audience right now? Sure. Uh, Mark Sandlin. I'm an ordained minister with Presbyterian Church USA. Um, I co-founded a group called The Christian Left, which is uh, sort of an intentional counter voice to the Christian right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm currently the president of uh, ProgressiveChristianity.org. And do a lot of writing and blogging and that type of stuff for all kinds of different folks. From well, that in the biz we call a segue. You wrote a piece actually back in 2016 that uh, I think is just as relevant today. Brian and I have spent a lot of time talking about the impending election. I feel like I use the word impending a lot when referring to the election. But the uh, the headline that you provided was 10 things you can't vote for while following Jesus. So you're going to stick around for two seconds, but I'd love for you to just kind of give us a flyover of uh, of that article that you wrote, you know, now four years ago. Sure, absolutely. Most best as I can remember, I kind of backed into that article because I was getting frustrated at the number of Christians that I saw who were really just crazy about uh, the Republican nominee, and hmm. and I didn't want to just be you know bashing the Republican nominee. I was like, so why am I upset about this? What are the what are the Christian uh, core principles that I'm having an issue with here? And so I picked kind of my top 10 and, and uh, the list kind of formed itself after that. Hmm. Yeah, Mark, I'm curious, just kind of big picture, uh, yeah. obviously from your bio, you're, you're really politically um, not just minded, but active. Yes. Uh, wondering yeah. uh, where that comes from. Has that always been part of your life or is this kind of a new thing in the last couple of years? Where's that drive come from for you? Yeah, it, it, it has always been part of my life all the way back to uh, middle school and uh, I, I had Ross Perot, uh, who I was a massive <laughs> yeah. fan of. I, hmm. uh, the, the blending, I, I didn't realize, I think, that um, that the older I got and the more important that understanding why I believe what I believe theologically, I didn't realize that as I was doing that, it was influencing what I believe politically as well. 
Um, and so that wasn't particularly intentional, but it, but, it, but it did happen. Um, and so ultimately now I, I, uh, particularly when I read the gospels, I have a hard time separating the two. Um, Jesus was a lot more political than, than I was right. Ra- I was raised in a Southern Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus was a lot more political than I was ever, uh, told about, at least <laughs> in the way that I read, uh, the gospels. Yeah. So one of the things that we've actually tackled a number of times, especially over the last six months is, and people have probably even said it about our show because Brian and I are both pastors and sometimes people will subtly or not so subtly say you're pastors, just preach the gospel, just focus on the gospel and stop getting tied up in all this kind of quote political stuff. You you sort of started to tease that out a little bit. Could you speak to that a little bit more? How how do you kind of speak to the people that feel like there's this dichotomous relationship between being a pastor, a minister and being involved politically? Yeah, when they say you're a pastor, you know, uh, just do pastor things. Right. Stay out right. Of politics. I, 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 my first response is, well, that's exactly why I'm in politics too, <laughs> because I, I actually care a lot about this this rabbi that w- was around a little over two thousand years ago. We're around t- talking and teaching to people who God is and what God's expectations are from us, and and you know, over and over again in the text. You see Jesus running up against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I mean, a matter of fact, I, I, I always make the joke that um, anytime that you read the word Pharisee or, or, or Sadducee, uh, you can almost in the background hear someone going, oh, let's get ready to rumble. Because <laughs> <laughs> there was always going to be something going on there. And, uh, you know, what we have to keep in mind is politics and religion were a little bit different back then than what we have mm-hmm. in America. They were really closely tied. So the Pharisees and Sadducees were actually, at least locally, the ruling government. They were right. appointed by Rome and all of that, but they were. So every time that you see Jesus confronting them for their issues, it's it's a political, not just a theological statement, but a political statement as well. And mm-hmm. so even for Jesus, they they weren't that far separated. And we could also get in, into the flipping of tables um, and, and how that's collected, connected to politics and wealth and uh, caring for the least of these and that kind of thing. But so for me, I can't separate the two. They, they, they have become probably in the last 20 years practically the same thing for me in some ways. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, do you get much pushback on that from your denomination, from your church? Uh, what kind of pushback do you get for being, yeah. quote, unquote, political? Well, uh, in the in the current church, uh, they actually called me because of the, the they had seen what I was writing online, oh. and, and and so it's a fit now. But the previous church to this, <laughs> it was kind of I, I know yesterday I talked a little bit about um, social media and being a minister in the balance and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, that it was at that church where I really became particularly. Um, political. I don't, I don't know if you remember Jerry Jones or was it Jerry Jones, the guy in Florida who was burning Bibles. Oh, I actually yeah. called him, I, I mean, Qurans. I called him the KBM, Quran burning man. Uh, <laughs> that's all I ever remember, KBM. Um, but I wrote those articles. I had actually, first I wrote a letter to him and said, hey, look, uh, I'm sending you this Bible I got when I was seven years old. It's been with me. You can see it's all written in and earmarked and falling apart. But if you're going to burn the uh, the holy text of my Abrahamic brothers and sisters, I, I want this in there with it. Hmm. And 
uh, I wrote an article about it, just kind of off the cuff, really saying, you know, hey, if you're out there and think thinking about doing it, why don't you go ahead and do this? Well, I was at a church that was kind of conservative. Um, and this is where it gets back to the social media. I learned the blessing of the fact that most small churches are uh, tend to be older folks. So they're not that much on social media. <laughs> and it, it, so it kind of blew that that particular post blew up across the U.S., uh, but very few people in my church ever were aware of it. I wasn't trying to hide it or anything. I certainly mm. talked about it. Uh, so that was a little bit of a blessing, but I did get start to get blowback as more people became aware. And, mm. and, and I got it from a little bit from the denomination, but PCUSA tries to, they, they use the, the label big tent a lot. They try to, to operate from the idea of a big tent. Mm. That we have room for lots of theological perspectives. Um, and, and ultimately where I got to, and struggling with this because it was a struggle. I mean, you guys know it. it what, what? How much yeah. do I do, and what's right and what's wrong? And I'm not saying that this should be true for everyone. I just arrived at the. I'm a second career minister. Mm-hmm. Um, I arrived at the conclusion that, and you can use this word "call" in whatever sense uh, your particular theological perspective lends. But I, I ended up with, with this kind of idea, this feeling, this strong. Um, certainty really ultimately that I was called to be a minister as who I am and not who hmm. people want me to be. Hmm. And if I couldn't do ministry that way, I wanted to do something else. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and that's just what was right for me. And, and frankly, yeah. when I made that decision is when everything started falling together. Um, I, I, and, and I've been fortunate enough that I can reach a lot of folks with my particular theological perspective now. And I, from it, got called to a, a church that really celebrates um, doing work for equality hmm. and um, uh, helping those that are marginalized. That's good. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that other voice hearing is Mark Sandlin. Uh, he is joining us for two segments. We're very excited about that. Mark is an ordained minister in the PCUSA, uh, written very prolifically, and we are excited to continue talking to him about this political world that we live in. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We are really excited to continue to be joined by Mark Sandlin. Uh, Mark is an ordained minister in the PCUSA. He's also the co-founder of the Christian Left and is president of ProgressiveChristianity.org. Uh, and Mark, uh, I want to jump off there. And yeah. and uh, a lot of people, especially in evangelicalism, people who've grown up in the church, might hear Christian Left and think, I think that's a little oxymoronic, that those can't go together. How would you answer that question? Uh, well, it's not the first time I've heard that. <laughs> hey, I'm going to give it to him. That's funny. Uh, it's not true, but it's funny. Uh-huh. Um, the, the way I usually uh, address it is, you know, and, and we have to get political again here because Christian left yeah. is intentionally political. You know, there, there, there was no Christian right. There was no Christian left um, just prior to Nixon. Yeah. Uh, the divisions that started happening in Christianity really came out, at least in America, really came out because of political strategy, particularly political strategy in the South. And the idea of uh, abortion was actually kind of the, 
the the the, the linchpin that was supposed to hold it all together and started separating us. Hmm. Um, and so we chose the word left just because they had already chosen the word right. Hmm. Uh, we actually would have loved to have called it something like uh, I don't know, getting back to original Christianity or getting back to the text or something like that. So it's really more of a, a way I, w- I would almost call it marketing, although we weren't thinking of it that way in that it's instantly definable. You hmm. know who the Christian right are. You hear Christian left. You immediately assume, well, that must be something different than the right. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, so, a, question, a question that I really want to ask you actually, in light of that, mm-hmm. is, and we've, and we've covered stories in the last couple of weeks in particular, where some prominent pastors have said things like, if you vote Democrat, you've sold your soul to the devil or no serious follower of Jesus w- won't vote Republican. Th- things like that. Very definitive. Uh, yeah. I'm wondering what what do you think? I mean, we're on a pretty conservative station as it is. Sure. What do you think would surprise a conservative listener about you, about your convictions, your passions, your alignments? What, what do you think might surprise someone who's maybe never you know, had a conversation this long with somebody in the progressive yeah. camp? Well, I mean, I, I guess if they're from the perspective of uh, you're not a very good Christian if you uh, if you vote Republican, I, I, I guess what would be surprising to them is that um, I am I am I'm actually registered independent, but I voted mm-hmm. more Democrat sp- precisely because of my Christian beliefs and the teachings of um, Jesus, and I had every opportunity not to do that because. I grew up in a very conservative town and my mm. entire family, including even my younger brother are conservative mm. Uh, mm. And, and vote that way. Uh, so for me, it really came down to the words of Jesus and what was important in his ministry. And that the article that you mentioned earlier, um, that's really part of what it comes from is, well, here, here are some teachings that for me just aren't matching up completely with, with the platforms that particularly, uh, at least for the last bit that the Republican party are putting out there. Hmm. Um, so I, I guess it would be surprising that I actually came from a different perspective right. and it's actually the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus and the overall ministry of Jesus that put me in the position where, uh, I, look, I, am I a fan of either of the parties? I don't really, I, they got issues. Um, <laughs> but, if I have to pick between one of the two that's going to win, I'm going to pick the one who comes the closest to uh, moving forward the issues that were important to Jesus and that Jesus told us are important to God and therefore should be important to us as well. Hmm. Hmm. I'm curious, uh, pastorally, or just as you wrestle with all of this, what role for you does unity play? Ian and I have talked about the polarization, social Mm -hmm. media, all sorts of stuff politically within our culture and even within our churches. Uh, So what are kind of teachings? What are your thoughts on, on on the necessity of unity, both between Republicans and Democrats under the umbrella of Christian? Well, I guess I would start with the fact that I think that the, uh, the way that p- p- politics are running right now that can t- consistently try to divide us and push us apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, that also runs antithetical to the teachings of Jesus. Um, yeah. But I also know um, it takes all kinds of people to move um, something mm-hmm. forward. And so uh, um, I'll always try to be a peacemaker uh, because that obviously is, is important. Let's just look at the sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Um but at the same time, 
I don't necessarily feel the responsibility to argue someone into what I think is the right theological perspective. Hmm. I'm happy to tell them why I believe what I believe <laughs> and to be loud and clear about it. And that does something really, really nice. Um, I've had the opportunity to counsel with folks who would have never talked to a minister hmm. who would have um, really kind of given up on religion if I was more centrist and always trying to find the, the common ground and kind of be careful about saying clearly what I think. Yeah. Um, whether it's issues like LGBT, where I've received letters of folks who said, and Tara shelled that article with my parents, we were you know, divided and I was ready just to end my life. And now we're all in a much better place. And thank you. Wow. Uh, it, it provides those sorts of, of, of uh, opportunities. And, and I think so. That's what I mean by it takes all of us. Some of yeah. us need to be way, way out on the edge where, wherever that is. Some of us need to be more focused on um, the unity and the peacemaking. I, I try to do that, but it's not my central focus. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King letter from Birmingham jail doesn't say it in these exact words, but says that um, detraction is distraction. Hmm. Um, that that you need to be focused on moving forward and hmm. the goals of, of where we need to get and not to let the detractors take up so much of your time that you're not effective at it. That's really good. We, we did reference this article from back in 2016, and we won't have time to get to it here. It is posted on our Facebook page. I would recommend you go read it. We'd love to know what you guys all think about that. But there's a line that you provided our producer. I don't know if this is from you or from something else. But it says there is a difference in letting your beliefs inform your political choices and letting your politics enforce your religion. Can, could you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah. And that's right there at the end, near the end of that particular article. Okay. Um, and, and it really has to do with both sides. Um, what I see far too much of uh, is um, folks who now consider themselves, you know, quite religious Um but they, they come now to the biblical text with what I call, well, that's not what I call, but we, we don't talk about it a lot when it has to do with the Bible, confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. they, pick, they allow their political parties to establish what is right in their eyes. And then folks go back to the Bible just to locate the thing that will reinforce in the Bible that that is right, rather than doing it in the opposite direction going mm -hmm. to the biblical text and saying, what does this say? What does this say is important? This, what, what does this say God is calling us to be? And then say, I'm now going to see what parties match up best with that and uh, encourage that we move forward in these areas. Mm -hmm. um, and I think politically we're, we're nowhere near that anymore. We we're completely on the confirmation bias side where yeah. um, if I want to uh, be really upset about immigrants I'm going to go find a couple of verses that are going to let me do that rather than the many, many verses that say you were once immigrants uh, in a foreign land. Uh, so show hospitality to folks. Hmm. Hmm. Mark, we're really grateful for you coming on. This was uh, really enjoyable. Again, that's Mark Sandlin. You can find him a couple different places on Twitter at Mark Sandlin on Facebook, Reverend Mark Sandlin. You can also go to uh, his website, uh, Rev Mark Sandlin, that's S-A-N-D-L-I-N.com, or go to progressivechristianity.org. Mark, this is really enjoyable. Hope we'll have you on again sometime. Thanks for taking the time. Love to do it. Y'all are a blast. Thanks. Thanks. Mike. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. So at Business Insider, we read this, wearing a mask doesn't reduce your oxygen levels and six other mask myths you should stop believing now. Uh, why don't you, uh, well, let's talk about this first. Are you still, are you sensing the pushback about masks is getting uh, more heated in your world, uh, less heated, just kind of people are getting used to it. What are you hearing from people about masks these days? I mean, I think it's probably about the same. You know, I have a, a pretty uh, diverse, diverse friend circle that, you know, intentionally so. So I'm always trying to to hear from the perspectives of people, you know, of, of various perspectives. I, I think it is it is tricky sometimes because sometimes when those perspectives meet in an environment that's not conducive for dialogue, obviously that can that can turn up the uh, the heat a, a good deal. But yeah, I've, I've tried to really be intentional about hearing out all perspectives. I think because you know even at community we've been doing a couple of outdoor events, but we've been very yep. clear at the onset about hey these are the expectations and the requirements for the gathering. For the most part, people have just been like, okay, I get it. it. It's a better value to me. I'd rather be able to go to the event than to dig my heels here on on my convictions about a mask. So I think by and large, people are probably feeling the ache to do some of these more normal things and are probably, if they're mask naysayers, they're probably like, okay, well, I'm willing to do it for the sake of getting a cup of coffee with a friend. You know what I mean? That's right. That's right. I, I was having this thought the other day, though. Uh, maybe the answer is a vaccine. Maybe the answer is never. But when's the next time that we not only won't wear masks, but w- it won't even be like the normal thing to do anymore? I wonder, uh, like you said, when you're going to get a cup of coffee or uh, going to church, I, it's just uh, it'll be interesting in the coming months, maybe years to kind of see that play out. Well, here at Business Insider, they said in recent months, masks masks have become a highly polarizing topic. Despite intense debates and the sometimes violent conflicts that erupt in public, the science behind mask wearing is not at all controversial. That is going to be a controversial statement for some of you, but let's Mm -hmm. keep going. There's extensive evidence to support wearing a mask to protect both yourself and other people and help slow the spread of the coronavirus. So here are some of the most common myths used to argue against mask wearing and why they're wrong. So if you're one of these people who's like, I already disagree with this, stay with us, at least listen to these out. And then at at our Facebook page, we would love to hear uh, your counter arguments. Why don't you take the first one? Sure. Myth number one, if I have the virus, wearing a mask means I'll be re-exposed to viral particles I exhale, making me sicker. So they, of course, think the fact is this claim was circulated in the pseudoscience documentary Plandemic, which has been thoroughly debunked by scientists. You can't reinfect yourself if you already have the virus, and it's impossible for it to somehow, quote, reactivate in your body, research has shown. Myth number two, masks don't reduce your oxygen levels. Here's the myth. I can't breathe in a mask. It might be dangerous to wear one because it could limit my oxygen levels. Fact, masks have consistently been shown to be safe, which is why they were already used heavily by medical personnel even before the pandemic. The common rumor that they reduce the oxygen saturation level of your blood has been debunked by multiple medical doctors. Furthermore, Despite claims that a mask could exacerbate health conditions like asthma, doctors have repeatedly stated that there's no legitimate reason for a medical exemption from wearing a mask. Strategies like fitting your mask properly and choosing the right type of mask may help. Okay, myth. If I feel fine and don't have a cough or fever, I don't need to wear a mask. Fact. 
As many as 40% of people infected with the coronavirus show no symptoms at all. These asymptomatic carriers of the virus can still spread it to other people without ever knowing they were sick in the first place. Even people who do show signs of illness can be contagious before symptoms appear, research has shown. And again, I'm noticing a trend here. A lot of links to research has shown or scientists prove or have been debunked. And I can guess, I can assume that, you know, people will be disagreeing with some of those references or some of those articles that they're being linked to, which, you know, I totally understand. Yes. (laughs) Myth. Next one. Only people who are afraid of getting sick should wear masks. If I'm healthy or brave, I don't have to. Uh, Fact. The primary benefit of wearing a mask is to prevent the people around you from getting sick, which is why it's so important for everyone to do it. Masks work by blocking potentially contagious respiratory particles from flying out into the surrounding air and onto other people every time you cough, sneeze, breathe, or speak. They can also prevent you from breathing in some particles expelled by other people. Now, inconsistent messaging about masks from health officials early on in the pandemic may have contributed to this myth, leading some people to believe healthy people don't need masks. But based on the latest research, the most effective scenario for reducing coronavirus infection is when everyone involved wears a mask. All right. Myth. Research found that neck gaiters, the fleece wraps that runners often use, are worse for coronavirus risk than no mask at all. Fact, a study from Duke University researchers swept the Internet this month, reportedly finding that people who wear neck gaiters would be safer wearing no mask at all. But these results were framed out of context. Here we go. The study was not looking at the effectiveness of masks. In fact, researchers were studying how to measure a mask's effectiveness. What? That's confusing. This is a key (laughs) distinction since, as the researchers themselves note, the results were not intended to be comprehensive, but just to demonstrate that the methodology could work for larger scale studies on masks to help compare their effectiveness. Are you tracking that? Did you get that? It's true that some masks may be more effective than others. But more research is needed to understand how neck gaiters measure up in the terms of effectiveness. That one was weirdly written. I, I will give you that. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know that I am any smarter having read that. <laughs> the next one, the next myth. Wearing a mask is an issue of politics, freedom, or just virtue signaling and doesn't make a practical difference in whether or not people get sick. Uh, fact, the research is unambiguous. Masks work to reduce the spread of infectious viral particles, thereby preventing additional cases of the virus. Recent research from the UK found that getting the entire population to wear masks could be enough to slow the virus without resorting to lockdowns. The more people wear masks, the more effectively a community can control the disease. A uh, myth. If I wear a mask, I can be close to other people or in large groups without wearing I'd say you, you could be close to them emotionally if you want. Okay, fact. <laughs> While the research is clear that masks work, masks alone aren't enough. Health experts continue to recommend other precautions to slow the spread of the virus, such as washing your hands frequently and maintaining at least a six-foot distance from others when possible. Research has shown that these preventative measures, when combined, can significantly reduce the rate of transmission and save lives. Okay, so uh, some bias here for sure, right, yes, that I'm sure for people sure. are reading I imagine I can already hear people start to say, like, what about the protests? Uh, I did find it interesting, even like, you know, the couple of times that I've actually met someone for lunch, like outdoors, you know, you meet outside the restaurant, everyone's wearing masks, and then you wear masks when you walk through the restaurant, and then you see you in the patio, and then you sit down at a table where you're probably closer than when you were standing outside the restaurant, but you're free to take the masks off because you're eating. Like, right. even, even right. that feels a little trippy, doesn't it? It does. It's there. It's a lot more gray. So this article uh, very purposefully is very black and white. 
it's very like, here's the science, here's the research. But uh, like you said, a lot of people out there are going, oh, no, I dis- I couldn't disagree with this more while others are amending it. If you're one of the people who disagree, stick with us to the next segment, because uh, we are going to talk about something that came out yesterday uh, that we've all been saying about the coronavirus and how to protect ourselves that now some studies say may not, in fact, be true. If you're interested in that, stay with us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about COVID and social distancing, and then do pro-lifers who reject Trump have blood on their hands? You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back, everybody, to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. A reminder, uh, find all the articles we've discussed and the interviews we've done at Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or uh, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can also uh, find us online at 1160hope.com and our podcast. Find our podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. Yesterday, Ian told me it doesn't help us if you unsubscribe and resubscribe. thought that could be a way to game the system, but apparently not. But uh, just by subscribing, it does help us. Go ahead and tell somebody else as well. We are grateful for all those of you who do listen on the podcast. Uh Ian, I, not to put you on the spot, is it any sort of holiday today? Any uh, random day today, or do you need a chance to look that up? No, I'd be happy to tell you what days it is today. It is National Cherry Popsicle Day. Gross. Oh, no, no, not gross. Not Ryan, gross. I'm not. I'm not even surprised anymore that you like the things that I think are awful. Is it the cherry or the popsicle? What don't you like there? Ch- cherry anything. Cherry is the worst flavor of everything. I would honestly... If I had, oh, uh, don't say it. I don't if even. Want I to had to choose don't any kind of pie. I don't. would choose cherry pie. Oh, that's completely different. Those are actual cherries. That's and if I would flavored, choose, that's cherries. If I would, if I would choose any ice cream, I would choose. Uh, I would choose uh, black cherry. Lose my number. <laughs> National Cherry Popsicle Day. What else is it today? It is also National Women's Equality Day. Okay. And uh, this is an actual thing. I can't believe I'm reading it. Well, I saw a bunch of people. A lot of people apparently know that it's National Dog Day. You probably know know that. that. It's Heroes Day in Nambia. But it's also National Web Mistress Day. I don't know what that means. I don't either, but I can kind of piece it together. Web Mistress. I don't think I want to Google it. Do you get a card for that? <laughs> yeah, probably not a card. I don't I don't know. I shouldn't continue any of this line of joking. I just why is that a day? Why is that on this like happy friendly holidays calendar thing that I've grown to love so much? I'm like, oh, cherry popsicle. Oh, women's equality. Wait, what? Why is this here? We we are instead gonna stick to National Dog Day. I wished both my dogs a happy National Dog Day today. Of course and, you uh, did. <laughs> Yep, they they did not seem to grasp it, but you know it is what it is. So maybe next year. It is also National Day of Repentance in Papua New Guinea. Wow, it's a public That's, holiday. I'd rather go with a cherry popsicle <laughs> than repentance. <laughs> Spoken like a true pastor, Brian. <laughs> well, whatever it is you're celebrating today, we hope that you're having a great hump day, and uh, glad to have you with us on this Wednesday. Uh, we. 
closed last segment by our last hour talking about COVID-19 and talking about masks. And uh, did you know uh, there's a new mask mandate here in Illinois that uh, if you go to a restaurant or a bar now in Illinois, it is now in effect as of Wednesday that you have to wear a mask whenever you interact with your server. Were you aware of that? Did you know this now? I I did know this only just this morning, though. I don't know how long this has been a uh, thing we could know about. It is a little, I don't know. How do you feel about it? I, you you did mention at the end of the last hour that it is weird to go into restaurants and not have it on when you're sitting there. I suppose this helps protect the servers. And so if that's the case, so be it. It's just a lot of taking off and putting on, right? Like you can see your server standing there. Oh, I got to grab my mask. So I... It's probably going to be uh, somewhat annoying, but if this is helpful either to slow the spread, but more importantly, to help servers feel good, I suppose I'm okay with it. But I, I, it's the whole mask thing's annoying. I, you know that I believe in it, but it's still annoying. Well, yeah. I mean, the full headline is a uh, new Illinois mask mandate for restaurant patrons takes t- patrons patrons takes effect as state reports 2,157 new cases. That's the impetus. Yep. That's why. Yep. And so that is going on today. We'll see if how much people stick to it, as always, with the mass stuff. But here, speaking of COVID, speaking of regulations, Good one segue. of the first. Thing, yes. One of the first things we ever learned in all of this. Right. It wasn't masks. It was social distancing. And uh, I could even ask it, most kids, if you ask them, how far apart do you need to be? The magic number has always been six feet. Well, this is from NBC News today. Six feet may not always be enough to distant enough distance to protect from COVID-19. New report suggests physical distancing should be seen as only one part of a wider public health approach. Let me read some of this. The current guidance for safe social distancing may not be enough to stop the spread of COVID-19. In the report, researchers from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the University of Oxford say other factors such as ventilation, crowd size, exposure time and whether face coverings are worn need to be considered. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the advice has been to keep at least six feet away from other people indoors and outdoors. Uh, The CDC said COVID-19 spreads mainly among people who are in close contact within about six feet for a prolonged period of time. However, in the report published uh, Tuesday, the researchers wrote that physical distancing should be seen as only one part of a wider public health thing. So we know this, right? We know that's only one part. But there's another part of this report uh, that I saw on the, what was I watching it? The Today Show today, where some researchers in this are questioning whether six feet is even enough. And when I saw that, I was like, come on, we've been told six feet since the beginning. What are we, you know, kind of moving the benchmarks here. And that's kind of where our problems have been this whole time, right? Masks, no masks, six feet, not six feet, whatever else it might be. Uh, maybe do you find it helpful when they keep kind of clarifying or is it frustrating when kind of the uh, the goalposts kind of move here a little bit? Well, I mean, Brian, that's how science works, though. Sci- science is constantly gaining new data and testing new principles. That's how science has always worked. I, I don't think it's some nefarious moving of the goalposts, you know, to keep us guessing all the time. This, this is how the medical field has, has always worked is that, all right, well, here's what we think we know now and we'll keep testing and we'll keep experimenting. And then we'll let you know when we find new things. I, I think that's perfectly in line with how the scientific medical field tends to operate. Okay. Well, in your opinion, does that then give license to people to go, 
then I'm not going to believe it because it's just going to change somewhere along the way, whether it be masks, whether it be social distancing, or is the move going, hey, we know enough about this that even if we don't have it all wrapped up, we know the the, the kind of general things we all should be doing. What, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, when you talk about a license, there there are literally states with, you know, laws in place now. So, no, you don't you don't have license to um, just disregard because you don't like the way the information came out or the timeline with which you received it. That it, that doesn't work like that at all. There are obviously other places where it's, you know, strongly suggested. But we've seen enough videos now of meltdowns at Walmart or restaurants or whatever. I, I think, again, if you're speaking to the general public versus, I don't know, maybe more specifically to the Christ follower to, to behave and act in the way we have the, the, to the best of our knowledge with the current information that we have to love, you know, the people around us like that to me should be the motivating driving factor. Like, okay, what would be the most loving thing to do? Even if it turns out uh, that might've been overly cautious. What if we find three years from now? Yep. That might've been too much. Oh, I, I don't think I lose anything though, by like, Oh man, I really look back on those eight months 2020 with regret because I wore a mask and turns out I only had to do it half that time. Like I don't, to me, it's, it's a strange, it's a strange time that we seem most preoccupied with doing as little as possible because it might not be accurate as opposed to, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go above and beyond to love people around me. Even if it's just simply lowering their anxiety because I'm wearing it, even though deep down, I don't actually think it makes that big of a difference. I think that's still a loving Christ follower thing to do. I couldn't agree more. And so I and I also think, like we said, just because some specifics change, we know in generalities the things that help in the fight for COVID-19. But I think Ian said it well. Uh, It's still what is the most loving thing that we can be doing for our neighbors. So take a read. Maybe you disagree with us. Maybe you think, no, when I when they keep changing things like this, even though, as you said, that's how science works. Uh, it just makes me lose all faith in them. If that's you, we would love to hear that from you. You could do that on our Facebook page at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, David French at the French Press wrote, do pro-lifers who reject Trump have blood on their hands? We're going to discuss that blog post next here on the Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're really glad that you're joining us today. And one of the harder topics as we move into this election season as Christians is, or as anybody, is uh, how do you wrestle with the topic of abortion? And Ian and I have been very clear since the beginning of the show, uh, the strong... Um, I won't put words in your mouth, so I'll just put it my own. Uh, the objections I have and the strong objections I have uh, to abortion and uh, the desire to see it eradicated within our culture. Um, so Franklin Graham, for instance, at Christian Headlines, they talk about uh, his warning to Christians of Joe Biden's and Kamala Harris's extreme abortion views. We talked last week how Kamala Harris uh, is rated by some people as the most uh, pro-abortion voting record of anyone who's ever been on a ticket, Republican or Democratic. And so we have to wrestle with that. But David French, who we talked uh, often, it seems like we did a story of his yesterday, a blog post of his yesterday. Uh, French dove into this at the French press and wrote, do pro-lifers who reject Trump have blood on their hands? Taking a look at the true state of the pro-life argument in America. And this is a really, really long blog post, but why don't you at least get us into it? Yeah, I'd love to read just as much of it as I can, because I think French 
speaks for such clarity. He says, I don't often post the trolling, angry tweets that I receive on a daily basis, but I thought I'd make an exception to launch a longer, important discussion that we simply don't see enough in American Christianity. How do politics impact abortion rates in the United States? It's been almost 50 years since Roe v. Wade was decided. What have we learned? Or let's put it another way. Since I'm not voting for Donald Trump in 2020, is this tweeter correct? Will I have the, quote, blood of dead unborn children on my hands? I'm going to give a short answer to this question and a long answer. The short answer is no. The long answer, which is going to uh, which is going to dive deep into the legal, political and cultural realities of the abortion debate, isn't likely to please any partisan. So buckle up. Decades of data and decades of legal, political, and cultural developments have combined to teach us a few simple realities about abortion in the United States. One, presidents have been irrelevant to the abortion rate. Two, judges have been forces of stability, not change, in abortion law. Three, state legislators have had more influence on abortions than Congress. Four, even if Roe is overturned, abortion will most likely be unchanged in the U.S. And five, the pro-life movement has an enormous cultural advantage. If the points above don't seem to make sense to you, then you're likely unfamiliar with the way that decisive numbers of Americans think about abortion, not in crystal clear terms of life versus choice or baby versus clump of cells, but through much hazier and subjective reasoning. This means that absolutists are consistently frustrated with the political process. Unlike Americans change, um, un- unless Americans change, that process will not yield the results they seek. But while many millions of Americans are hazy about the politics and morality of abortion, it's apparent they have a bias about the practice of abortion. In their own lives, pregnancies are both increasingly rare and increasingly precious, and thus abortion is in steady decline no matter who sits in the Oval Office. Before I walk through the points above, I want to share with you two key pieces of data. The first is a chart showing the American abortion rate since Roe. It's compiled by the Pro-Choice Gutmaker Institute, which, uh, and while the data isn't perfect, it's perhaps the best data, data set that we've seen. And uh, I, won't, I won't unpack it, but it is all available on the blog that we're going to post. I posted this before, and a number of commenters have responded with two immediate questions. Does this account for medication, uh, medication abortions? Also, this isn't isn't this decrease merely an artifact of declining American birth rates? After all, if there are fewer pregnancies per women, then it stands to reason that there will be fewer abortions. Their first response is easy, but what about America's declining birth rate? And he goes on to talk about that. He says, Gutmaker reports a 13% decline in the ratio between 2011 and 2017, a period that represents the last five years of the Obama presidency and the first year of the Trump administration. Broader historical data shows the ratio peaking and staying relatively high throughout the 1980s and at between 346 and 364 abortions per 1,000 pregnancies before plunging since 1990 to the current ratio of 184 Hmm. With these numbers as the backdrop, let's walk through politics, law, and culture. And that really is kind of the bulk of the rest of the blog. Any thoughts thus far, Brian? It's fascinating when you start looking at the stats of abortion levels. Uh, and his, a lot of people do make that argument that he's making there that, you know, presidents don't matter as much. And, you know, it's more of a state-driven thing. I still do have a hard time knowing in my own mind than uh, – should it affect how I vote? Like, I, it still affects how I vote. And so, um, but yeah, he makes a compelling case here about uh, it being a more nuanced discussion in terms of what affects abortion rates, what is going on right now in our country in terms of the abortion rate. I'm like, I'm always surprised when I read how much it's dropped off since the 1980s or whatever else. I, yeah. I wasn't aware of that and I don't often hear that. And so, um, 
does that make a difference? Yeah. Do I still have high reservations about candidates who I think are even um, willing to push abortion politics further? Yes, I have high reservations. So it's, it's a little bit of a both and for me. So the first one on that list was presidents don't really matter. It says, let's begin with a pop quiz. Who is the most pro-life president in the modern history of the United States? A surprising number of contemporary Republicans have a quick answer. Donald Trump. Not only is the answer wrong, other presidents have passed more substantial pro-life policies. The fact that any person could credibly think that the case is symbolic of historic presidential irrelevance. For example, Trump is rightly praised for enacting new Title X regulations that required physical and financial separation of Title X projects from abortion-related activities. This decision has has caused Planned Parenthood to withdraw from the Title X program. But the Trump rule is less strict than Title X rules uh, promulgated under the Reagan administration. Moreover, Trump has hardly defunded Planned Parenthood. In fact, Planned Parenthood received a record high taxpayer funding in 2019, performing a record high number of abortions, and its affiliates received $80 million in coronavirus bailouts earlier this year. Unlike George W., who signed into law a Born Alive Infant Protection Bill and a Partial Birth Abortion Bill, Trump has not signed a single significant piece of pro-life legislation. But even Bush's historic legislation merely nibbled at the edges of the abortion challenge. It's exceedingly rare for babies to be born alive after botched abortions and partial birth abortions uh, was barbaric, but thankfully infrequent. Yes, Republican presidents use the bully pulpit to advance the pro-life cause. And Trump is to be commended for speaking to speaking to the March for Life. And yes, Democratic presidents use the bully pulpit to hail, quote, reductive reproductive choice. Remember when President Obama said that if his daughters made a mistake, he didn't want them, quote, punished with a baby. Regardless of the tweaks to the law, regardless of the bully pulpit, look back again at the numbers above. The abortion rate declines. The abortion ratio declines. They declined during pro-life and pro-choice presidencies. They declined when George W. was president, and they declined when Barack Obama was president. If the decades-long trend holds, they'll decline no matter who wins in November. There's a bunch more. We are all out of time already, which is unfortunate. We should maybe commit another segment to this sometime. But uh, any any thoughts even just on that, that one that I was able to cover? I it's uh, my thought is people should read it and wrestle with it because we kind of a lot of times we'll consider it kind of a one to one deal. Like, OK, if I if I elect a pro-life president, it's going to take abortions down and vice versa. And he's just putting the numbers in front of us and saying that's not how it's worked in history. Uh, it's still not convincing enough for me to go. So therefore, it doesn't matter to me. But I do think. Uh, we can oversimplify things. And he's going to get in. Some of you might be going, what about judges? What about that? That's his next one. He's going to get into those further. Uh, and so as David French often does, it really makes you think, right? Like it, it really causes you to wrestle and go, okay, uh, what exactly uh, is going to cause uh, the abortion rate to go down? And I would close by saying this, that I think churches need to get really um, – serious for a lot of churches are, but churches in general need to get serious about uh, doing all they can to take that number down rather than put our hope in politicians that we vote for. Politicians are important. They set laws, but that can't be our only hope, right? The church uh, needs to be uh, doing its role. uh, And then we can continue to see that number go down. Well, coming up next, the Gospel Coalition, Kevin DeYoung, he says, seven thoughts about preachers preaching politics. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, the Gospel Coalition. Kevin DeYoung writes often there. He's also a pastor and a professor. 
uh, in 2018, but it certainly uh, still stands today. Kevin DeYoung wrote a blog uh, entitled this, The Preacher and Politics, Seven Thoughts. The Preacher and Politics, Seven Thoughts. Let me get us to the thoughts. He says, this post is addressed to preachers and is about preachers. While many of the reflections may be useful for all Christians, I'm writing specifically with my fellow pastors in mind, of which Ian and I are pastors, as you know. Mm -hmm. We live in a day where politics are everywhere and everything is about politics. On one level, this has always been true. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That's a political statement. Every sermon touches on polis, on the city of man, on our earthly citizenship. But that's not what I have in mind, at least not entirely. What I mean by politics are the elections, the elected officials, the political parties, and the endless stream of policy debates and legislative, economic, and judicial controversies that so much of our daily news and social media feed comment on constantly. What is a pastor supposed to do with these controversies and debates? That's my question. When preachers are quickly criticized for saying too much, you're not gospel-centered, or saying too little, you're not woke, it behooves us to think carefully about the relationship between pastoral ministry and politics. So here are seven thoughts. Ian, we've talked a lot about this, but man, navigating uh, in the pastoral world, and for all of us, but but you and I are pastors, so navigating uh, what it means to be a pastor and when and not and when and when not to speak on politics and other issues feels increasingly like a minefield, doesn't it? Well, it's not only that, too. I feel like a lot of people I was having this conversation a couple of days ago. Different pastors are recording their services, their sermons at different times throughout the week. Oh, so, for example, you know, we record ours, you know, five or six days in advance. And another pastor was sharing, you know, they recorded theirs on like Thursday. Something happened in the news on like Friday or Saturday. So by the time that it was live on Sunday, he got a lot of pushback, like, wow, you were completely tone deaf to this thing that just happened. And he, you know, he had to explain, like, I'm, I recorded it on Thursday and I didn't have the time or bandwidth to re-record it in light of these new events. So that's a whole other aspect. I feel like the, the politics for the pastor has always been a, a bit of a minefield, but even more so now yeah. where a lot of a lot of people are having to record their messages pretty far in advance, which that's which gets tricky. So let's, let's get into his seven. And uh, I imagine we'll probably even have some pushback for these. Yep. Number one. Let the Bible set the agenda for your weekly pulpit ministry. I love preaching through the Bible verse by verse. I'm not smart enough to decide what the congregation really needs to hear this week. So they're going to get John 5, 1 through 18 this Sunday. Why? Because last week they got John 4, 40 through 54. <laughs> and in the evening, they're going to get Exodus 24 because last Sunday was Exodus 23. Wait, hold on. Does he preach two different passages? He does. The same day? He does. Yes, he does. <sighs> All right. That means I've <laughs> talked in the last two months about abortion, social justice, and slavery because that's what's been in Exodus. I want my people to expect that as a general rule, the Bible sets the agenda, not my interest or what I think is relevant. Yep. And I think that's good, but I also think you can do that without preaching this text into the next one, into the next one. But yeah. being Bible-driven, I think, is kind of the point there. Yeah. Number two, the gospel is the main thing, but not the only thing. To be sure, we must never wander far from the cross in our preaching. But if we are to give the, quote, whole counsel of God, Acts 20, we must show how a thousand other theological, philosophical, and ethical issues are connected to Christ and him crucified. Uh, Thaba, how do you say his name again? I am, I'm sure I don't know. Is right. A gospel-centered evangel evangelicalism that becomes a gospel-only evangelicalism ceases to be properly evangelical. The Bible is a big book. It doesn't say everything about everything, and it doesn't say anything about some things, but it does say a lot about more than just a few things. 
What? That was a mouthful. That was a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Distinguish between the corporate church and the individual Christian. Okay, here we go. We need believers in all levels of government and engaged in every kind of public policy debate, but there is a difference between the Bible-informed Christian citizen and the formal declarations from church pronouncements and church pulpits. In the early part of the 20th century, most evangelicals strongly supported the 18th Amendment, the Volstead Act, and the prohibition in general. When J. Gresham Machen, 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 made the unpopular decision to vote against his church voicing support for the amendment. He did so in part because such a vote would have failed to recognize, quote, the church in its corporate capacity as distinguished from the activities of its members on record with regard to such political questions. Interesting. I feel like that alone could be a whole other blog post. Absolutely. Number four, think about the nature of your office and the ministry of your church. I studied poli sci in college, he writes. I've read fairly widely for a layman, a layman in economics, sociology, and political philosophy. I have plenty of opinions and convictions, but that's not what I want my ministry to be about. That's not to say I don't comment on abortion or gay marriage or racism or other issues about uh, the which the Bible speaks clearly. And yet, I'm always mindful that I can't separate blogger Kevin or Twitter Kevin or Professor Kevin from Pastor Kevin. As such, my comments reflect on my church, whether I intend it or not. Ooh, that's powerful. Number five, consider that the church as the church is neither capable nor called to address every important issue in the public square. This is not a cop out, and some may read it as such. This is common sense. I've seen denominational committees call the church to specific positions regarding the farm bill, Sudanese refugees, the Iraq war, socially screened retirement funds, immigration policy, minimum wage increases, America's embargo of Cuba, the Palestine-Israeli conflict, global economics, greenhouse gas emissions, social welfare, and taxation policies. While the church may rightly make broad statements about caring for the poor and the oppressed and may even denounce the specific cultural sins, the church should not be in the business of specifying which types of rifles Christians may or may not use, a real example, or which type of judicial philosophy Christians should want in a Supreme Court justice, another real example. Okay, so if we had more time, I might push back on that one a little bit, but I'll, uh, I'll let you take number six. All right, number six, consider if you've been consistent. Obviously, there's a lot of talk at present about social justice and a host of issues often associated with the left. This makes people on the right a bit nervous, and and understandably so, he writes. The gospel mission of the church has been buried before in an avalanche of humanitarian causes and social movement. At the same time, uh, the concerns of the right wing are a little hollow when pastors pass out partisan voter guides, tweet about the Second Amendment, sing Star Spangled Banner in church. Yeah. And then when anything about race or justice comes up, start har- harumphing about politics in the church. Right. I'm sure the same thing happens in both directions. We are fine being political until someone on the other side gets political, too. Um, you know what? I've been thinking about that one a lot. I'd love to riff on that. We'll go back to it. Sometime in a later show. Yeah. Number seven. I think is a gun reference. Be prepared to fire when necessary, but keep your powder dry. I don't think he's talking <laughs> about like powdered milk. There are times when the national crisis is so all consuming or the political issue so obviously wicked or righteous, the minister will feel compelled to say something. Think 9-11 or riots in your city or the declaration of war. But these are the exceptions that prove the rule. Our news media, not to mention social media, makes us feel like every day is a global meltdown and every hour is a moment of existential crisis. Just a reminder, he wrote this in 2018. Yeah. Don't believe the hype. There is no exact formula for when you interrupt your sermon series, when you drop a blogging bomb, or when you add current events into your pastoral prayer. These things call for wisdom, not one-size-fits-all solutions. But let me suggest that when it comes to politics and public policy, parenting is a good analogy. Yelling works only when it's done sparingly. 
Hmm. That's that's a good list, but you might disagree with some of them. You even said, I'd like to push back on that one. And that's why we put these up at our Facebook page, the common good radio show. Well, coming up next, I want to end the show with something I saw on ESPN last night from a basketball game. That's coming up next here on the common good AM 1160. Well, Hey friends, welcome back to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're really grateful that you joined us today. I don't. I mentioned this to you the other day, Ian. I've been kind of uh, loving the NBA playoffs in the bubble uh, down in Orlando. Although anyone who's following the news today sees it doesn't really look like there's going to be any games today, as players are interesting. We'll have to talk about this later in the week. Uh, they are boycotting the games uh, to keep the conversation focused on what's going on in Kenosha and all of that. Uh, but something interesting happened last night in the game I watched or after the game I watched more specifically, let me set the background. The LA Clippers, Dallas Mavericks playing game five, series tied at two. Uh, Most people believe the second best player on the LA Clippers, a guy by the name of Paul George. Uh, He has been just categorically bad the first four games, like historically bad, actually, if you run some of the statistics. And he has been getting just roasted on the, on uh, by analysts and everything as to why the Clippers aren't playing well. And last night he ended up scoring 35 points, Uh, had a great game, and they won by 40. And uh, so that was interesting. But what became really interesting is what Paul George said after the game. So let's listen to it, and then I would love to get your reaction. Go ahead. Um, It was just a little bit of everything. Um, You know, I I underestimated mental health, honestly. Um, I had anxiety, um, a little bit of depression, Uh, just being locked in here and – you know, just I just wasn't there. I checked out, and it was you know, games two, three, four. I, I wasn't there. I felt like I wasn't there. All righty, and so Paul George talks about being in the bubble, away from his family, away from his norm, not playing well. That he's been quote in a dark place, depressed, anxious, and needing a psychologist, team psychologist, his coaches, his teammates to kind of help start to pull him out. Uh, When I first heard that, I was both really impressed that he was kind of admitting to that. Here's a superstar who makes tens of millions of dollars. And we know that doesn't matter, but a lot of times in image it does. Uh, And also kind of surprised to hear him talk about that. Wondering what you thought about when you heard this NBA superstar kind of talk in these terms. Well, I kind of want to ask you, why, why were you surprised? What was surprising about it? Because you never hear this it, on on a on a microphone after a guy has a big game. You just I watch sports all the time, and you know that there's guys who struggle with depression. You know there's guys who have family issues. You know there's For guys. Sure. You just never hear it, other than like that big emotional sit down, you know, half hour interview. But this was right after the game when everyone expected him to be like, you know, it's been a tough tough couple days, but I, I was glad that my teammates had my back and I could break out of it today. Glad we got a win, but no, he instead used it as an opportunity to kind of shed a light into the humanity. Maybe this is what surprised me. You can almost forget the humanity of like professional athletes, uh, actors, or famous people. Uh, and so to hear him be like, hey, you know what? This is really hard being locked away from my family in a bubble, uh, listening to everybody talk about how bad I am. He said, I underestimated mental health honesty. Honestly, I had anxiety, depression, just being locked in here. I just wasn't there. I checked out. Uh, mm. Is I just found it startling. But I also found it really um, 
encouraging that he would admit it because I think it opens the door for other people who are, if you could see me using air quotes, quote unquote, who live, quote unquote, more normal lives, not NBA basketball players or celebrities. I think when you hear someone like him say stuff like that, it gives you uh, maybe even more license, maybe to admit to what you're feeling. And so I was happy that he admitted to it. I was just surprised to hear it. Yeah, I, I meant not to the same degree at all, but uh, a couple of months ago, I had mentioned very, very briefly in a, in a sermon, I had referenced the uh, the counseling that my wife and I had gotten, and yep. I got a I got a bunch of emails from people. It, it wasn't the point of the sermon at all. I just kind of mentioned this therapist has been really helpful in helping me kind of unpack and unravel some family o- of origin stuff and why you know why certain things sort of trigger in certain ways. And I I heard from a bunch of people that were like. You have no idea how freeing that was to hear a pastor mm. talk about the therapist that they go to. Like, and I, I, I honestly didn't even really think about it with that level. I mean, I thought, okay, I think, I think I want to actually say this. I think this is important, but I did not really anticipate that it would be like, I didn't hear, I didn't expect people to say that was freeing. Or like, mm. oh my goodness, thank you for, I, I felt so much shame for, like, I found this other article over at Crosswalk and it is, uh, 10 myths keeping Christians from the counseling they need. Here, here are just a few that they reference. Uh, if the Lord is my strength, I can't be weak, right? Uh, number two, I need to have it all together. Number three, it's going to hurt more to deal with my past than to ignore it and move forward. Number four, if I just pray harder, that's when I hear all the time. Mm-hmm. Number five, I can talk to my small group and family about my problems, which, I, you know, yeah, do that too. I would recommend that. There's six. God is good, so the problem, uh, so the problem I'm going through is fine. Number seven, the therapist is just going to shame me. That's mm-hmm. so sad. Eight, counseling is only for serious problems. I hear that one a ton too. Yep. Nine, there's no way I could afford to go to counseling. And then ten, there's nothing I can do to change the past. So, I thought that was a pretty solid list. And maybe you're listening, and you're like, "Yeah, I've certainly believed some of those." And maybe you still are believing some of them, and they're keeping you from getting the kind of counseling and help that you need. Um, I, we're going to post this one as well, just because I think it, it does kind of unpack a little bit of like why these are lies, why they're myths. And uh, there doesn't need to be any shame whatsoever. Not only just like you're saying, Brian, admitting these things, but then also like seeking the help that you need. Even if you're skeptical, even if you're like, I don't know that it'll help all that much. Like what, what could it hurt? You know, you, you could think that taking vitamins is snake oil. or like, I don't know that vitamin C actually helps. Like, well, Maybe you could try some vitamin C. Maybe maybe it'll make a difference. Who knows? And so I wanted to end the show that way because uh, there's probably people listening right now who are struggling, who when you hear Paul George say things like, uh, I'm in a dark spot and I was feeling depressed and anxious. And you're in that spot, too, not knowing where to turn. And and I was that's why I was impressed that Paul George in front of millions of people, right, uh, watching on TV or however many said, listen, I reached out to a psychologist. I reached out to my teammates and coaches. I called my family. Like he's basically like, I couldn't do this. I couldn't do this anymore. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you take the last minute before I close up here. If someone is struggling listening right now, what's one word of encouragement you would give them? Yeah. I mean, I think everything in that article at the very yeah. least speaks to why not getting help. The reasons that we, we often avoid it, uh, are much more ingrained than just simply somebody told us that we didn't need it or told us that it would be shameful. You know, scripture is filled with accounts of men and women who have very real struggles and are very, very honest about 
their pain, their heartache, their mistakes. I mean, even honestly, there's you could read a lot of what Paul writes in the New Testament as like he's not entirely sure he wants to even keep living like that. Yeah, that's a, you know, and and you might not be to that degree at all, but like the Bible doesn't seem to feel any need to hide those parts of the human experience. And maybe that means that you don't have to either. And whether you feel like it's a two or three or a nine or a 10, either way, like God's love for you doesn't change. Like your identity in him doesn't change. Like he desires for us wholeness. And that doesn't mean that like your church failed you because you're still struggling with these things. They're, they're, they're two different, they're two different functions. And so, yes, keep praying, keep bringing people in, keep allowing those closest to you to, to really kind of bear the burden with you. And, don't don't be afraid to get the help that you need. Yeah, and you use the word freeing. Hopefully, uh, just having this conversation will be freeing for some of you out there, as you said, to go get the help you need. Well, praying for the people in Louisiana and Texas as they face this huge hurricane coming, but uh, they will be in our prayers. We're really glad you joined us today here on The Common Good. Join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.